Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We will be joined a little bit later on by Bob Pickett, who is the chairman of the Regulatory Commission for Alaska. But first, before I bring Bob on, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the latest issue of Shell Magazine that's getting ready to be released. Our feature is Ann Bradbury, the CEO of American Exploration and Production Council. This is a great group that we caught up with that actually is located in Washington, D.C. It's a group that really does help our elected officials understand better energy and energy policy. And right about now, we really need a lot of those organizations to help our elected officials start making better energy regulations to help with these crazy gas prices that we're dealing with. I'd also like to tell you about an upcoming event happening in San Antonio on August the 10th. It is our annual State of Energy in San Antonio, Texas. This year, it will be held at the Embassy Suites. Uh, Our feature is Ann Bradbury, who is coming from D.C. to talk at our State of Energy, along with Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, Mike Howard, the CEO of Howard Energy, and Jason Modlin, who is the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. It's definitely a luncheon that you want to attend. There'll be lots of networking opportunities, as well as great insight and information on the great energy transition that is occurring as we speak. And now it is time for me to welcome on my guest for the segment today, Robert Rapier. Robert, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. Now, I want to start with you have a lot of experience under your belt. Currently, you are working with Protom Energy. You're the Director of Environmental Health and Safety. You're also a chemical engineer by trade, and you're a senior Forbes contributor as well. So you have a lot of experience in the energy industry, and you have decided that you are coming on the show and helping me from time to time to talk a little bit about what seems to be a a continuing ball of mess when we talk about the Biden administration and their energy policies. Let's jump in. This past week, we had a lot of movement coming out from the Supreme Court on many issues. One of them specifically was the powers that they were limiting the EPA on uh, how they will power or cut admissions looking at the environment and how how much do, do they control and have the powers to do that? And pretty much the Supreme Court kind of told them, hold on, not so fast. So explain what happened with the Supreme Court's ruling and how it's going to affect the EPA moving forward. Okay, so basically, I mean, EPA has the authority to regulate dangerous pollutants. And Supreme Court ruled that they overstepped their bounds because CO2 is not defined as a, as a harmful pollutant. And so... What, what uh, the, the Clean Power Plan did under Obama, it tried to regulate entire grids and said, you know, you're going to make the grid cleaner. And um, the Supreme Court said that is, uh, that's overstepping your bounds there. Um, you, you know, you can't do that. Now, now, it could still happen that through legislation, you could say, okay, we're going we're gonna to green up the grid. But the Supreme Court said you can't make that move through the EPA. And... Um, you know, it affects mainly coal-fired power plants. And, you know, it's true that coal is the 
number one source of carbon emissions in the in the world. It's it's the largest single um, uh, source of carbon emissions. But I think most people don't know it's primarily China. I mean, what we contribute to the to the global emissions as far as coal goes is pretty small. And we sure we should be doing our part. But um, you know, I've I've looked at the CO two emissions around the world before, and what we contribute is a tiny fraction of what you know, Asia and India, um, the, the, the whole Asia Pacific, the China and India, the whole Asia Pacific region, um, you know, the US and Europe together produce about a third of the emissions of, uh, of China and India and the Asia Pacific region. So that's really the most important thing we could focus on right there if we really wanted to get carbon emissions down. I mean, I, I think long-term we are gonna phase out coal in the US um, it's been on a long-term decline, even you know before clean power plant, coal had been on its way out. Uh, in fact, fracking made that happen. Fracking at cheap natural gas is the single most responsible factor for putting coal plants out of business and coal companies out of business. And, and I think people, most people don't realize that. It was, it was a fracking of natural gas that really put the coal industry in a bind, more so than anything else. Well, the importance, though, of the ruling kind of said that it has to go back to Congress and that Congress will have to legislate what type of authority, if we move into the green, what will those rules look like and right. not a unelected uh, agency can be can make those uh, determinations. Right. And, I, and thank you for pointing out that other countries do far more of admitting uh, all of this stuff into the air, specifically China, with China stating that they're going to be bringing on a new cold uh, fire power plant one a month or something to continue to power their, uh, you know, their country. And that's not helping us at all. So when you say um, we need to look at this as a global right. uh, situation, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think Let's, people don't um, realize China burns more than half the world's coal. I mean, China by itself, more than half the world's coal. That's a that's a major, major source of CO2 emissions. And the United States can certainly lead the way, but we can't do it alone either, which is right. you know, part of you know why the show is popular is it, it kind of really talks about what are the real problems. And until we start figuring out the global situation, it seems like it's at the cost and on the backs of the American taxpayers. So let's talk about that. Uh, let's switch gears. Biden is blaming gas station uh, owners uh, for the high prices. And obviously that's not true, but they're doing a lot of backpedaling right now because there's so much coming at them. And I think it's maybe an avalanche of really bad PR. And even the mainstream media now is saying, we don't even understand what he's, uh, this administration, do they really even understand or have a handle on what's happening in the energy sector? Give me your thoughts on how bad is it for the Biden administration right now? I don't know if they don't understand or they do understand and they think it's just more popular to blame the oil industry. You know, one of the things I've warned and warned and warned about, about this energy transition, if you try to go too fast and you cut off your supply, we get into the situation we have now because people still need oil. And so, you know, it's all well and good to say, hey, we're going to stop oil development and we're going to we're going to handicap the oil industry. We're not going to talk to them. We're going to we're going to make things hard on them. And then you get to a point where they're not investing enough and when we don't have enough oil, because basically you've told them, hey, we don't need oil. We don't need gas. And so they're shutting down refineries that are not profitable and they're 
they're not investing multi-billion dollars in projects that are going to take, you know, 10 or 20 years to pay out because you're sending them the message, we don't need that oil. And then suddenly, oh, we don't have enough oil. And that's the, that is the real risk with the energy transition. I'm all for an energy transition. I think we, we've, we've got to move to renewables ultimately. But along the way, if you don't ensure that you have adequate oil supplies and adequate you know, fuel supplies for consumers, you're going to get into these situations where you have really spiking prices. And so now that we do, the Biden administration is pointing fingers at the oil industry. And I, I pulled up a tweet from Biden the other day from, uh, I think it was 2020, where he said, you know, I will always take responsibility. I will not blame others. And he is absolutely blaming others for a problem that is not their problem. I mean, the, the gas stations don't have much control over what the price of gasoline is. It, this, is this comes down to fundamental supply and demand. And, you know, all the way back to COVID when we lost a lot of supply. And then, you know, again, you've got the climate where we're saying, hey, we're not going to need oil. And so, oil producers, they're investing. I mean, rig count is up. Rig count has grown by 60% over the past year. And oil production is up about a million barrels a day. But it's not back to where it was pre-COVID. And, and part of that is you're sending a message, hey, we don't need you guys anymore. Well, and Robert, you brought up a good point, which is the refining capacity. It has been on a decline for years. And then to make matters worse, we have a blockage from the, this administration that they want to see no um, federal leasing occurring and also now offshore, he's moved to that. So let's talk about that real quick too. The block on new offshore drilling in the Atlantic and Pacific. Tell me about your, your thoughts on that. So Biden campaigned on that. He's going to stop uh, federal oil development. And uh, there are certain areas that he's blocked off. But ironically, in the past week or so, environmentalists have been up in arms because they opened up areas in the Gulf of Mexico. And um, you know, you got the NRDC saying, hey, you said you weren't going to do this. But again, he's bowing to the political realities of uh, high oil prices. And, and um, you know, the thing about it, you, you can have a, a very progressive sort of energy policy, but if it results in high gas prices, you're not going to win reelection. And so you're not going to be able to see your policies through. And that's the political reality he's, he's bowing to. Now, I don't know if he'll open up the Atlantic. Uh, there's still a lot of oil to be produced in the Gulf of Mexico. But, you know, I, I know a lot of environmental groups have come out criticizing him in the last week because they said, hey, we are going to we are going to open up some leases in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And the environmentalists weren't happy about it. Well, we do know that they're a large funder of their campaign, the Democrats uh, overall party. However, even the Democrats are running scared with Biden's numbers and they are the lowest, I think, that any president has ever had last I checked. Um, and the American people are pretty upset, too, with these super, super high electricity prices, gas prices at the pump, food is up. Uh, it's affecting everything, these poor energy policies. So it'll be interesting to see how far he moves and pivots to try to loosen up some of the regulations. Um, do you think that we will see any kind of headway from them here uh, in the next couple of months of really changing their position and making things better? Um, you know, I don't know. They you know, they asked Biden, are you going to meet with the oil companies? And he said, no, but he's, he's, uh, he said, my people are meeting with them, but he's, you know, he's going to Saudi Arabia. So, um, you know, that to me sends a very bad message. And, and um, I think it's, it's really in poor form to criticize and throw your domestic oil industry under the bus. And then you're holding out fig leaves to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Um, 
you know, it, it's, I, I just don't get it. I don't get why you wouldn't sit down with the heads of the oil companies and at least better understand, okay, what are the issues? And then explain those issues. Don't say, uh, you know, do your patriotic duty and reduce oil prices. I mean, that's like asking Apple to sell their shares for less. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way oil is bought and sold on the market. And uh, Apple has no control over what their stock price is at. I mean, they can, they can make announcements and they can do a few things to maybe manipulate it a little bit. But ultimately, it's how much buyers are willing to pay. And that's the way oil and gas prices are set. And um, I, I don't think Biden or, or you know, Bernie Sanders or many of the Democrats understand this. They're going to understand it come November when they are completely wiped out of office because the American people are pretty upset about it. That is the pulse. Uh, I know that for sure. Robert, thank you for stopping in on this segment and talking to us a little bit about what's happening currently in the administration and everything energy. We look forward to having you back next month on the show when you join me again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And now it is time for me to welcome my guest, Chairman of the Regulatory Commission for Alaska, Bob Pickett. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, Chairman. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, Kim. Well, this is the first time you're joining me on uh, In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we're excited because you're from the great state of Alaska. Uh, and so we want to learn all about what are the energy uh, sources, uh, some of the energy problems that you guys are facing uh, with this administration and some of the uh, needs. And I also want to try to get into later on in the show the federal land situation and how much does that involve Alaska. But before we get started with the show, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your specific role as chairman of the Regulatory Commission of Alaska? What specifically is uh, this regulatory body designed to do? It has a number of different functions, Kim. We perform a lot of the same activities that the Texas Public Utility Commission performs, but we're also involved with oil and gas and doing some things that the Railroad Commission does in Texas when it comes to uh, certificates of public convenience and necessity, uh, construction permits, things of this nature. Other uh, functions that the Railroad Commission does are handled by really two other state agencies, the Alaska Oil and Gas Commission and Department of Natural Resources. Okay, so so you guys are looking at some overlapping of pipelines, utilities, and that's kind of the core of what you guys look at. Yes, it is. So <clears throat> Alaska is a very has a lot of uh, oil and gas reserves. Uh, it puts a lot of uh, income into your state. Give me the current state of um, of where you feel Alaska is in specifically in uh, the energy sector, meaning how much of it is oil and gas uh, coming into the economy, how much of it is maybe solar and wind, and, and all the diversification in energy and utilities. Alaska is a heavy hydrocarbon state. If you look at the total energy consum- consumption, 90% plus is either natural gas, uh, various uh, petroleum distillates, uh, some coal. And when you talk about renewables, that's actually less than probably seven or 8% with the vast majority of that being hydro. Wind and solar play a very small role to date in Alaska, largely because of our environment. 
Okay. And when you say environment, is it um, if, if you don't have renewables, like in Texas, we have a lot of uh, solar and wind panels uh, and not so much focus on hydrogen is now starting to come in, but hydro, not so much of. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you explain to me why you guys, the environment is not structured uh, great for a solar and wind panel type of renewable? Well, part of it is uh, in the summertime, photovoltaics can work great. Battery storage does not store for more than a few hours. And so you're never talking about days, weeks, or months. In the winter, it's very dark up here. Mm -hmm. In some parts of the state, the sun goes down in mid-November and doesn't come back up until uh, later in January. Uh, Wind, we have a tremendous wind resource. Alaska is a huge state. We're about two and a half times the size of Texas. Mm -hmm. And we have more coastline than the rest of the country put together with our Aleutian and all the islands. And there's a a tremendous wind resource. And in some communities, it has been fantastic. Uh, Kodiak, Cordova, between the hydro and the wind resource, they're very, very independent. In most other areas of the state, it entails putting a lot of transmission in to connect the wind uh, generation to the grid. So there's reasons. I'm not saying it's not going to grow, but it's just challenging. So I want to talk uh, a little bit about the environment as well. Every state is experiencing and moving towards some form of wanting to be uh, net zero or less carbon footprint. What is the current state of Alaska? Um, How uh, involved is Alaska in looking at environmental issues? It's a beautiful state, and I would imagine it, it, it is very much looked at, but in specifically in the hydrocarbon area and lowering the footprint there, how prevalent is it over there in your state? We do not have any, on the electric sector, for example, we do not have any form of uh, renewable portfolio standard. A bill was introduced by the governor uh, this past legislative session in uh, January with some very aggressive goals, but it did not pass. I would expect at some point we're going to have something. But again, Alaska is heavily, heavily driven by hydrocarbons, not just for local consumption, but for our economy. If you look at a lot of the uh, EIA statistics, some things really stand out. Uh, The oil and gas sector is a dominant consumer of all forms of energy resources. I think we have about 615 uh, million BTUs consumed in the state and a a big chunk of that is in the industrial sector something that's also different in alaska is we have a very large airport in anchorage that's one of the major air transport airports in the world between asia europe the united states and so when you look at the statistics some of our numbers just sort of jump off the page and look like real anomalies we also have an incredibly large fishing fleet throughout the Gulf of Alaska. And we have a a very aggressive tourism industry with very large Mm -hmm. uh, tourism ships that come to Alaska and consume a lot of energy. So those things all show up. Uh, Potential resources could be tidal, uh, geothermal. We've got volcanoes all over the place, but again, it's geography and economics and how do you actually get things connected to where people are gonna consume the energy? Well, you know, in most states, Outside of Alaska, there's a lot of um, environmentalists that are just pushing the green movement. And it, it does make sense that your state is not one due to the uh, environment itself that can actually lend itself to these somewhat unreliable energy sources. And that's not to knock them. It's just you have to have the sun 
a shining to, to have anything coming from solar. And you also have to have, you know, the wind. And you said you do have a lot of wind, but they are not always reliable. When we come back from break, uh, Chairman Pickett, I want to pick up with a little bit about uh, federal lands and the situation you guys are dealing with uh, here with the uh, Biden administration. But we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Join us on Wednesday, August the 10th at 1130 a.m. for the State of Energy Luncheon in San Antonio at the Embassy Suites on I-10 and Landmark Parkway. This year's keynote speaker is Ann Bradbury, the CEO of the American Exploration and Production Council, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, and Jason Modulin, president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. The moderator of the event will be Omar Garcia from the Port of Corpus Christie. For tickets and for more information, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Chairman Pickett, who is part of the Regulatory Commission of Alaska. Uh, Chairman Pickett, before the break, we talked a little bit about the diversity of Alaska in uh, in the whole energy uh, situation. We also talked a little bit about um, the regulatory commission that you're uh, serving right now. But I want to switch gears because the Biden administration um, pretty much from day one kind of um, stated that they were going to seriously start taking on oil and gas and trying to f- come up with some policies that fit uh, them wanting to move more green. One of the first things that uh, Biden, uh, the Biden administration did was sign an executive order to kill the Keystone Pipeline on day one. Um, this time last year, the Obama administration had over 50 sales of federal land leases. Uh, Biden administration has been in office well over a year, and they have uh, yet to hold one. My question to you is, how much uh, federal lands uh, does Alaska have, and how is this affecting um, the, y'all's current situation uh, in the way the administration is, is, is handling the federal land lease programs or lack of? The federal lands issue has always been a huge issue in Alaska. When Alaska became part of the uh, United States as a state in uh, 1959, we had a compact with the federal government about how lands are going to be handled and the purpose of those lands. Uh, the state Alaska has roughly 365 million acres, which is about two and a half times the size of Texas. Out of that allocation, uh, the state of Alaska has a little more than 100 million acres. Uh, Native corporations have about 44 million. And just straight up normal private ownership is probably less than a million acres at this point. So that leaves the the federal government controlling 60% of the land in Alaska. And in the past, there have been cooperative uh, relationships with uh, BLM and the various uh, federal agencies to allow uh, various forms of uh, activity 
on these lands and as long as it's done responsibly and you know you got to go through the army corps of engineers hoops and do all the, the NEPA takes stuff. a long time for that <laughs> it takes a long time for that and so when you get an administration that is incredibly hostile which right. that this is my opinion uh joe biden or president biden was one of five senators to vote against the authorization of the trans-alaska pipeline in 1973 and his hostility towards uh, the industry in Alaska continues to this day. And it's not just a matter of not having new lease sales, he's canceling existing leases and then has the audacity to wag his finger at the oil and gas companies and say, why aren't you producing more? I'm, I'm surprised the situation isn't worse than it is now. Most recently, he just canceled a proposed lease sale for Cook Inlet, which is where for the vast majority of the population in Alaska, that's where we get our natural gas. It's a basin that was developed in the late 50s, uh, commercialized in the uh, 60s. In fact, Alaska for 30 years was the only U.S. state exporting LNG to Asia, to Japan. It was the first U.S. export facility. It went very well, but as a maturing basin, uh, the production has gone down, so it's critical. Uh, Hillcorp is the, the dominant owner of uh, the the assets in Cook Inlet. And as you well know, when you get into a maturing province, it takes a lot more investment and forward-looking planning. And when you have these arbitrary and capricious actions by the federal government, it just makes things much more difficult. I've, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we're going to get ready to go to break. When we come back, I want to drill down a little bit more uh, pertaining to the position of the federal government and this administration and its consistent uh, assault on the oil and gas industry. And specifically, um, if we, I want your opinion on, if we have a president that is promising to provide more liquefied natural gas to our allies in Europe, but yet you're talking, you made a perfect example, but is actually canceling and taking things offline or not approving permits, um, how are we going to do this? And then I also want to get your opinion on uh, uh, yesterday or the day before his rhetoric that he was going to um, potentially um, uh, make actionable an executive order that we have an emergency when it comes down to oil and gas, all derived by his own policies. But we got to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium, plus you can earn double dividends that will go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at TexasMutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers invites you to their annual conference on September 14th and 15th at the Hotel Drover in Fort Worth, Texas. The event will feature author and energy expert Alex Epstein during the industry luncheon on September 15th. It's the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers annual conference September 14th and 15th in Fort Worth, Texas. For tickets and hotel reservation information, go to TexasAlliance.org. That's TexasAlliance.org. We're back. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Chairman Pickett, who is with the Regulatory Commission of Alaska. 
Uh, Chairman Pickett, before the break, um, you were telling us how uh, the Biden administration has really affected Alaska in many ways. A lot of your state, uh, 60% of it is uh, has federal lands. And I want you to drill down a little bit more and help us understand the impact it has when you're not allowed to drill on these federal lands. What's the financial impact to the state? And, and what type of, of negative outcomes or positive outcomes, which I doubt, um, have you seen as a result of this administration doing that, uh, you know, stopping federal land leases and, as you said, taking even some off? Um, has it hurt the state of Alaska financially? If so, how hard? I couldn't quantify how hard it has hit the state to date, but oil and gas is a very forward-looking industry and the capital investments are planned many, many years into the future. And so when you have massive uncertainty on the uh, the regulatory side and actions of any administration, it just throws cold water onto everything. And and the one distinction between Alaska and uh, Texas, for example, in Texas, you can have a lot of smaller producers. You've got a well-established oil support industry. And Alaska, you're talking about mega projects, typically. You don't talk about just hundreds of millions of dollars. You can talk about many, many billions of dollars that must be committed over an extended period of time. And with that, you need some uh, certainty. We, we sort of have the the big play thing that goes on up here. Once you open up, say, a Prudhoe Bay and Kaparik and, and places like that, it starts to open up other parts of the North Slope that smaller producers can come in. Mm-hmm. But you got to have the backbone in place. And and so far, uh, Hillcorp or Harvest Alaska, which is um, you know a Hillcorp entity. Uh, took over BP's ownership, 50% ownership roughly of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. And and they're a good company in going into maturing uh, fields, but they to date have not been a real major exploration sort of company. We have ConocoPhillips up here that continues to make significant investments on the slope. And we have a lot of native corporations up here. The one thing that I'm, I'm kind of proud of Alaska is with the Native Claims Settlement Act, when you look at the 50 largest companies that are grown up in Alaska, 38 of them are native-owned corporations. And some of them are heavily involved in oil and gas. Doyon, Doyon for example, contracted with Conoco to build the largest mobile land-based drilling unit in North America. It's gone into operation, just recently drilled a 35,000-foot horizontal well. And the beauty of it is, in terms of environmental impact, you can take 150 square miles from a single pad. And when you move, it has tracks and it's sort of, you can move itself. It's a remarkable thing. So it's a mobile rig. It's a mobile rig. It's a mobile, they call it the beast. And it's, uh, it it is. (laughs) It sounds like that. And so, but Alaska is heavily dependent on the income. I mean, our state government is largely funded by uh, oil, we're, we're one-eighth owner of Prudhoe Bay. And so we get revenues from that and tax revenues. And we've been able to build up a significant permanent fund, which now is about $80 billion. And so between those two elements, that's what funds state government. And a tremendous number of our jobs are oil and gas related or support services. And so when you throw a big question mark over the whole industry, it is not helpful at all. 
Well, you you are right, Chairman Pickett, because all, you know what we don't think about is how long and how much infrastructure it takes. You know, it it, it really upsets me to hear uh, media, other media outlets, just saying turn turn the switch or you know open the spigot. It doesn't. It takes a lot of like you said, capital investment, a lot of time and infrastructure, pipelines and things. And in this administration consistently is obstructing everything, rather it's not approving uh, leases or it's uh, not approving pipeline. It, it just consistently is throwing a wrench. And so how does a company, if, if, if a company was out there listening and saying, well, how would I project for the next two years uh, profitable growth, sustainable growth, when you know that the government at any moment is going to come in and just either drop another executive order or not approve some of the plans that you have. It makes uh, conducting business and forecasting very, very difficult. And then you add in how expensive these projects are, and you start seeing this is the reason why the United States and uh, North America producers are having such a problem, and Alaska is a perfect example of these are very, very big projects, and you just can't nilly-willy start something when you have to have some kind of reassurance and security. And this administration isn't quite doing that. How are Alaskans feeling about this administration? I know you, you don't have a poll or anything, but do you, are, do you feel that the Alaskan people are supportive of energy and, and you have very, very little anti-oil and gas sentiment going on there? Or is it a state that is starting to change and diversify in their opinion of how they look at oil and gas and climate change? I think it's fair to say for the most part, Alaskans are very supportive of oil and gas, but we are also supportive of efforts to have a good environment. I mean, we're proud of our environment. We have the most beautiful state. I know Texas mm-hmm. has beautiful areas, but we have the most no, beautiful sir, state in the country. No, sir, it's not as beautiful a state as Alaska. And, <laughs> and we, we actually pride ourselves. And I've been through, we, we regulate the Trans-Alaska Pipeline concurrently with the FERC. So I've sat in FERC hearing room one for weeks on end Ooh, and tell us more one one, one uh, thing is we are a heavily regulated state just because of the different tentacles of the federal government and the, the state involvement but by and large i remember uh, before the trans-alaska pipeline was built and that's about the time i came to alaska there were all kinds of accusations that the environment was going to be ruined, all the caribou were going to die, all the wildlife was going to be devastated after Trans-Alaska Pipeline was built. Every single one of those accusations was false, totally false. I don't want to overstate it, more challenging than just boneheaded policies from the federal government. And that is what's taken hold in this whole EGS. CO2 is the demon molecule. And all of this is filtered down to the, really to the grade schools. I was shocked. I've got many friends in Houston, some very involved with the Chenier and uh, Tulare and Annette. Their kids come home from grade school and are taught that somehow their parents are engaged in something that is not good. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's wrong. That is just That wrong. is wrong. You know, uh, Chairman Pickett, we're going to take a, uh, another break. When we come back, I, I think that's a topic worth talking about because – You'd be surprised how many, uh, all the United States, how much discussion is being taught in to our children in school on oil and gas, and yet it's the number one commodity that you have to have to sustain life. We do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. 
Mark Thursday, September 22nd on your calendars for State of Energy Midland, hosted by Shale Magazine and the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show. The luncheon on September 22nd starts at 11.30 a.m. at the Doubletree Hotel in Midland, Texas, and you'll want to get your tickets soon as this will sell out quickly. It's State of Energy Midland, Thursday, September 22nd, starting at 11.30 a.m. For more information, go to shalemag.com or email Josie at shalemag.com. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that will keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. We're back. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Chairman Pickett with the Regulatory Commission of Alaska. Chairman Pickett, um, we've talked a lot about how uh, this the Biden administration has really, um, you know, Alaska has 60 percent federal lands and they have put that on a hold, so there's no drilling and leasing occurring, and how it has had an impact on Alaskans. Um, but I guess it, y'all are also over utilities and pipelines. So we know that you guys are diverse, but how diverse in the oil mix? Um, how much is it oil, gas, renewables? And and how much? How come Alaska uses so much energy when, when you talk about, I know you discussed earlier that there were four different areas that you guys really require a lot of energy. Is, is it diversified enough? Like in Texas here, uh, back in February, we had a major winter storm that took us offline. Our elected officials had not really realized that 10 years ago we had faced this same thing and they didn't fix the problem with baseload capacity. And I believe this session again, they missed it again. So we are one bad storm away potentially from experiencing the same thing. You guys require so much energy as well. Do you feel that your diversification in energy is strong enough? You guys have uh, major, major uh, winter challenges and, and major uh, uh weather challenges. So how diverse is Alaska's energy and how strong is it in the sense of being able to be reliable? We, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, are heavily dependent upon natural gas. And when you look at, uh, say, the uh, utility sector, probably roughly 60% of our electricity is generated from natural gas. We do have a a fairly substantial hydro resource in the rail belt and certain other areas of the state. But when you look at the other renewable, and we have some coal primarily in the Fairbanks area, but when you look at the other areas uh, concerning photovoltaics and wind, it's very small to date. Now, I think in certain, what you've got to realize about Alaska is most of the state is not interconnected by any road system. We have oversight of roughly 125 electric utilities. We economically regulate about 32 of those. Uh, And so you don't have transmission interconnection and a tremendous amount of electricity is generated by diesel in these areas. And so I believe in some of these communities, there are opportunities for uh, solar and wind, Mm -hmm. but, you know, integrating small microgrids we probably have more microgrids realistically than any place else in the world at this point, just by our nature. 
but getting the integration uh, of the microgrid with wind, photovoltaic, diesel, it's not as simple of a, a job as it seems. And battery storage is not ready for prime time at this, you're still talking hours. Hopefully it will improve, it's very expensive. We have battery uh, energy storage systems at a couple of places on our rail belt, which is the populated area, mostly um, down in the Kenai Peninsula and up in Fairbanks. And, but even the biggest battery system in the world right now is Moss Landing in California, Monterey County. And you look at what it is capable of doing over a foot. It would not, even that one facility would not uh, cut it on the grid if there was a major outage. So you hear the, you hear the uh, arguments and the rhetoric on this, but I think at some point a real record, a real scientific record needs to be developed for the public and policymakers to look at in, instead of the, the grandstanding, which is, which is out there. Right. And I think we're going to look back on this period of time and sort of scratch our heads and go, now, how did that exactly happen like this? Yeah, we had a Jimmy Carter. Chairman <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pickett, um, tell me, what is it the administration could do to help uh, solve this problem? Uh, and, and what were your thoughts on President Biden threatening um, publicly the oil and gas um, sector that he might uh, put in an executive order in place or, or order that we are under a national emergency because of the oil prices. Isn't it that a lot of the administration himself, his policies and regulations are leading where we are right now? If you just asked me what recommendation would we make to the, what I make, and I'm speaking for myself, not the commissioner of the state, to the administration, I would say, hit the reset button and go back to square zero and engage the brain and start thinking. If you were to issue another executive order that you're describing, I think it would be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we had uh, a guest on the show a couple of uh, weeks back and, uh, you know, the discussion has been when you do something like this, you, are you nationalizing the oil and gas industry? And we have seen this in the past and this is what happened with Venezuela. So it's a pretty scary thing to think that um, this could even be floating around. But let's just say that um, he tears up the Keystone Pipeline executive order. Um, how is FERC, since you're in FERC, uh, how friendly are they to uh, oil and gas? What are the problems in that situation there? What, do you, what does the industry agency uh, face with FERC? Uh, I think it's going to be very challenging because a lot of the, the external environmental policies are now getting integrated in, in some fashion into the review process mm -hmm. for granting certificates. And it's... Well, well it first really, of all, tell us what FERC is. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And they have a lot of functions, both in the electric and the gas sector. And... I've, I've worked with a number of their staff people and they've been quite helpful. We're, we've been non-FERC and non-NERC jurisdictional, so we literally had to develop our own ERCOT TRE from the ground up, which we're still in the process of finalizing that. But the FERC is a influenced by policies um, and appointments to, you know, the FERC commissioners are appointed by the president and confirmed by the, the Senate. And I don't think they're alone. It's just that as all of this thinking with 
RPSs and decarbonization and all this kind of stuff. I, I love the term decarbonization. I, my first question to people, have you ever taken an organic chemistry class? Yeah. And do you, do you understand what that actually means? But uh, it's, it's going to be a factor on these pipelines. Uh, and, but policies are, are, should be driven by Congress. And what Congress does going forward, depending on the, the results of the election, will influence what FERC does or doesn't do. And I'll sort of leave it at that. I, I've known most of the FERC commissioners over the last 15 years, and many of them are very fine people. I know the current chair somewhat, but they have a different sort of influences that are driving them than I do. Well, to be honest with you, you are the first guest that we've had on the show that uh, we've covered uh, quite a bit about what the uh, halting of the, uh, you know, federal lands means, but we haven't really interviewed anyone that the state is really being affected, and there's a few states that really have a lot more federal lands. Texas is not one, as I stated earlier, so we don't really see as much of a of a problem, but there are states like Alaska that this is a serious issue for you guys. So I do appreciate you, Chairman Pickett, coming in and giving us a little insight today into how Alaska is dealing with a uh, Biden administration that is not very oil and gas friendly and how it affects uh, different states here in the United States. Thank you again for being a guest on the New Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you, Kim. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. 